Recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. A Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the good folks at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, this is Restoring Darkness podcast. This episode of Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. She is an interdisciplinary designer and researcher. She holds a bachelor's degree in product design from here comes my French, L'Ecole Supérieure de Design from France, and a master's degree in architectural lighting design at, here we go, ready? Hochschule Weimar. I hope I got it almost there. University of Weimar. Uh, the University Vismar, of Applied Sciences. Wismar. University of Applied Sciences, Technology, Business, and Design in Germany. She is currently a doctoral candidate in biology at Freier Universit Universität in Berlin, Germany. With her research taking place at the Light and Pollution, uh, Light Pollution and Ecophysiology Research Group of Leibniz Institute of Freshwater Ecology and Inland Fisheries, her work involves the interface of ecology and architectural lighting to mitigate environmental solutions for urban lighting design applications. That's exactly what we want to talk about on Restoring Darkness. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you very much for having me. Um, let me first ask you. You know, when people go on these scholastic journeys where they're, they're, you know, they're interested in a discipline and they start with maybe, you know, with um, design and then they, they, they start to see some ecology. How did you end up in and end up? How did you find yourselves on the, on the threshold of this, you know, how ecology and lighting design can interact with one another? How did you get there? What an interesting question. Um, I would say it's. It means that I was at the right place at the right time. I met the right people. I was having, I would say, very naive questions at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, these questions allowed me to be surrounded by the people with, that were interested in answering the same questions. I somehow still am trying to communicate to the general public, which is uh, lighting design. It's my main interest. And then how do we somehow share um, with a broader audience, specifically lighting professionals, about not only what is light pollution, but how is my practice affected by it? What can I do to somehow apply sustainable lighting techniques? So it started there by this main, I would say, um, with this broad subject and then uh, 
the general questions started during the master program, mm -hmm. uh, specifically in under the supervision of uh, Dr. Karolina Silinska-Dabkowska. Mm -hmm. So she's a lighting professional and researcher. And uh, in Hochschule Wismar, we have a very specific we had a very specific course called Organize Yourself, and it's an introduction to research. Um, I think the lighting professional, it's more uh, hands-on uh, lighting products, mm -hmm. uh, looking at light in a more creative way. And then this particular course was focused on, okay, how do we take artificial lighting and start asking questions about urban environments? How is light applied indoors? We had different subjects um, and I had the chance to take the one about the artificial light at night on uh, flora and fauna mm -hmm. and it basically opened a new door for me um, i was quite interested but at the same time i had no idea what i was doing mm -hmm. and so i can say it started there um, during the master program uh, with uh, dr carolina Sinis-Kadabkowska, and then through the way um, i developed um, my master thesis focused on this subject um, it was presented in Brazil mm -hmm. at the LED Forum conference. And I would say that was the first time I grasped, like, okay, I feel like I'm talking about a very new subject for so many people, mm -hmm. but maybe I don't have yet the answers to how can we approach this? Mm -hmm. And then, um, long story short, the doctoral project somehow was built uh, with her and Dr. Franz Hölke who's at the Leibniz Institute of Freshwater Ecology and Inland Fisheries. You know, just, I, I'm going to make a comment. There seems to be a lot of more in-depth research into the darkness restoration and preservation area in Europe than there is in North America. And it, it seems like Germany seems to be a hub of this research. There's a lot of people in Germany that are researching the impacts of, of uh, electric light at night on all manner of different things. And I wonder why that is, but before, um, maybe, maybe that's a question, but let me ask you something else. You said the word sustainable, okay? And I find that word is problematic because everybody has a different definition of what sustainable is. And when we're talking about darkness restoration or preservation or designing for outdoor lighting and with respect to flora and fauna, what does sustainability mean, Catherine? I like that you put it in that way, that sustainability and definition for each person might also depend as well. Catherine, hang on one second. Hang on one second before just keep that thought, because uh, but you're cutting out a little bit. Do you have anything else open on your computer, any YouTube, any email, anything other but this instance? No, nothing else open. Oh, geez. Okay, we had we lost you Only a little this, bit there. So let just count to yeah. five in your head and then continue answering that question. Hopefully it clears itself up. Okay, great. So society, I think it's a very interesting word and it somehow connects to this aspect of communicating light pollution and artificial light at night. It depends, uh, I think the definition depends on your background, um, your formation. So let's say as a, Lighting professional, I will try to define sustainability based on what I have known through my experience. 
Um, but sustainability has a, um, say, it sticks to different fields, mainly focuses on uh, a tool that it's applied and that we meticulously think how we're applying it. That would be my personal approach. Um, how to design um, it would, I would say it's a very, very broad way of defining sustainable. It focuses on what is it that the human is using, let's say in this context, it's light, and how are you using it? So when we are addressing sustainable lighting, I would say that sustainability should somehow ask the question, how are we using light? Mm. Is it for humans? Are we considering, let's say, areas and blue areas when i say areas let's say park uh these where birds are nesting let's say where a fish might migrate um yes it's a complex answer uh, subject to answer but i think it uh narrows down asking that question what is the tool that i am using and how am i applying yeah, I think the what I think what the industry and, and academia need to do is really come up with the six principles for sustainable lighting or something like that, where, you know, we want the life cycle of the light fixture to be as long as possible. We want it to be field maintainable. We want it to be controlled using network lighting controls. We want it to be able to change, to be tunable, um, and we want it to be dimmable, like things like that that are that associate this. And then also in sustainability, we want to be able to um, limit light pollution for humans and the rest of the living things in the world. And, you know, I, I don't know how we... Uh, because when some uh, sustainability, the word is thrown around and used, but not everybody knows what everyone's talking about. <laughs> it's true. And uh, communication plays an important role in that aspect. Uh, I think we're underestimating it as well. Um, the communication between fields, let's say how are lighting professionals grasping the information that researchers are creating? And what would sustainability mean for a scientist? And what would a sustainability mean for a lighting professional? Um, it relies on that thin line of communication. But going back to the principles that you mentioned, I don't think we can narrow it down at six, but we can try to somehow mm -hmm. narrow it down to, let's say, key aspects to consider uh, to avoid light pollution. Because mm -hmm. light is applied for humans and it's impossible to say we're going to live in complete darkness. I think um, it's a very sci-fi universe to think about it. I would love that it happens. That would somehow occur. But um, I think these principles are somehow already written in academia. Mm. The two main, I would say, issues that I have noticed is that, let's say, as if a lighting professional tries to access uh, scientific papers, are all of these documents uh, open access? Is a lighting professional able to access these documents or do they actually have the time to gather all these documents and read them through? And not only read them through, understand what is the conclusive message of a paper? And in addition to that, 
um, I, I think of science as creating a big map and picture. And each scientific paper, it's a tiny puzzle to that bigger picture. So as we're building this story of understanding light as, uh, let's say, as an, an applied tool, but as well as a pollutant, we have to somehow communicate in order to understand this big picture. Lighting professionals have to communicate with um, scientists about the tools that they're using, um, the tools that they would like to develop, and as well, an exchange of information from academia for lighting professionals to understand which ones to avoid, what to mm. take care of. And yeah, it goes on that, um, uh, the development of the principles, I think, on communication See, in order to develop them. I think we have to first properly communicate. I, I think science is another bad word. I think science is a confusing word too. I th to me, like just, I took some notes here. And when you say, when you said science, I think, you know, what we were talking about is research, engineering, product and product development, right? Those are all scientific endeavors, are they? Are we like, when you're saying science, are you mean, do you mean research that's applicable to the lighting industry in this case? When I mean science, I mean, um, because not all research is applicable to, I would say, let's say in this uh, field that we're talking about, it's not applicable mm. to um, the field of uh, the lighting practice. But I think uh, we have to consider it. We have to consider how is my research going to be translated? Uh, how is my research somehow adding to this equation of the lighting practice? Mm. I think it's important to share um, why is light a pollutant? We have to understand it. I, th mm. I think that uh, we're still struggling, and I, and, and I include myself in that equation uh, because I've, I I've belong to that part of, okay, I'm, I have a background in lighting design, but I am uh, doing research right now. So how can I filter that information to the other field? It's uh, when you start talking to other persons, I think you start to grasp, okay, how can I find um, a definition, a concrete definition where the person would understand, a person that uses light as a tool and will not be repelled by the information that I'm providing to them? How would they grasp this information and uh, about light as a pollutant? Hmm. Light is a tool, but we also have to understand that it's a pollutant, meaning it has to be carefully used. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. I saw on a Twitter post. Yes, I go on Twitter sometimes, but I saw a Twitter post that was that made me step back for a second. And what it was was some guy claiming that capitalism is better than communism or something like this. But his proof was the difference in light pollution between South Korea and North Korea. So his he had a picture of light pollution in Korea, right? He didn't consider that. He's like a sign of success. Right. But you had this picture of Korea and then you have the line between Korea and, and the north part of Korea is all dark and the south part of Korea is Korea is entirely light polluted. And this is a sign of success. Right. That look, capitalism is better than communism because look at all the light pollution. Um, I, I looked at that and I said, oh, man, like it should be the other way around. The symbol of success should be that we are able to maintain and preserve darkness. Um, tell me why or how is light a pollutant? Well, 
um, regarding on the aspect of um, biology, mm. uh, we there's um, a review paper by uh, Maya Gubisic that gathers uh, all the different uh, scientific papers about light as a pollutant, but that it affects specifically the hormone in our, in in the body known as uh, melatonin. So this hormone, it's regulated um, by darkness and light. We, like humans, we have it in our body as well. So let's say if uh, melatonin is uh, reduced, it would mean that we would have light present. Um, and I think that uh, once we have all this, um, papers gathered and uh, try to understand, let's say, the story about not only one species, we have to somehow connect the story. Okay, how is this light affecting, let's say, insects, fish, because an, or, um, an environment is not only one organism. We have many organisms in this environment. And I would say that um, the, the reproduction of melatonin somehow, um, or the lack of reproduction of melatonin, uh, gathers that uh, not only humans are affected by this light, but as well uh, other organisms. And how does it affect other organisms? Okay, tough question. <laughs> so, um, how it affect other organisms? Uh, I would have to say that, uh, for example, um, and I would like to have uh, concrete examples that because I think the experience somehow allows you to to understand and grasp grasp what happens. Let's say you're walking at night uh, in a city, and you notice that a tree it's uplit, uh, lighting it's illuminating the tree, and in these trees there are birds nesting. Um, you don't notice immediately these birds, but maybe you will hear them at night. And it means that this light that is emitted upwards will somehow disturb their sleep. Mm -hmm. And I think this would be uh, just an example on birds. When light is applied, let's say, in marinas, it's applied uh, in bridges near rivers, it's, if the light emission is directed towards the water, uh, it can potentially affect, let's say, a fish that it's migrating, taking a route on a river to migrate, uh, it can affect uh, the, the dial movement of zooplankton, which uh, rely on the bottom column of the water. And the effects go on and on. Like it would be so completely different from one organism to the other. Sure. Um, that it's like adding a cocktail of different elements in light because it's not only when we address light, we have to think about the components in it, the parameters. We have the brightness, we have the distribution of the light, we have the color appearance. We have so many elements that depending on how this equation is developed, it would affect differently each organism. Hmm. And so it causes these organisms to live in or be in an unnat unnatural environment for them. So to simplify it. Yes. There, there are nocturnal and diurnal species, and the nocturnal species need darkness in order to live abundantly, and the, the diurnal species need darkness in order to rest and sleep, and we're disrupting this with electric light. 
In a few words, yes. Um, you know, I, I, there's a lot of talk in the lighting industry about, you know, human health benefits or increasing productivity, you know, improving circadian rhythms and, and this kind of stuff. And there is a lot of research that proves that we can do that with electric light. But one of the dragons we haven't slain, um, Catherine, is that we seem to, with each technology cycle, reintroduce a whole bunch of bad things into lighting. So, for example, you know, you went from HPS, which is, you know, 2200 Kelvin. It's a low Kelvin temperature fixture. Um, and you move to 5000 Kelvin or 4000 Kelvin LEDs. Um, you move, you go from focused light of an HPS reflector to very uniform light that's in a higher Kelvin temperature and much brighter to the eye. And, you know, you, we're moving to these different areas. I, I think the lighting industry from the, you're from academia, I'm from the lighting industry. I think we should continue to focus on removing the trouble causing or the problem causing elements of light like flicker and Kelvin temperature and um, uniformity in street lighting so that you, you know, you can see entirely across an entire area as if it was daytime. I think the, the goal of the lighting industry is um, we should be not focused on so much as benefits right now as how can we get rid of all the consequences of electric light that are bad um, and eliminate those. Do you, would you agree with that? Like I see there's a lot of consequences out there to electric light, whether it's flicker, you know, all sorts of different problems. Um, do you agree with that? I do agree, but I think it's not an easy job to do. Mm. I don't think it's an easy job to do. I think there are many aspects involved. Um, I would say education. It's one of the main aspects we really need to educate uh, the broader audience that the information it's not stayed, let's say, in academia. We need to educate lighting professionals. We need to manufacturers as well. I think it's a flow of information. We need to educate newer generations. They need to learn about this. I'm, I would say my main focus on doing the, let's say, this doctoral project is that part on education. Uh, I think uh, right now we are educating lighting professionals focused on how light benefits humans, how to create these uh, human-centric scenarios. Mm -hmm. um, and there's very few education on, uh, but how can light affect the environment? What is light creating once we bring it in the exterior environment? Um, I think we have to ask our questions what is actually happening outside. Um, we have to as well um, not only educate, communicate to um, policymakers. We have to as well. Um, it's, it's a very complex and rooted problem uh, in a society level, but as well in it involves different fields. Mm -hmm. uh, it involves the, as you mentioned, the lighting industry. It involves uh, academia, and uh, yeah, there's not an an easy answer. I think what the what the research gathers right now it's that there are simple things that we can avoid, and I think uh, we shouldn't overcomplicate it because the academia already has the answers. Only that I think 
we have to develop the proper language to communicate it. We have to collaborate to communicate the, this information. Um, as you mentioned, we are uh, considering, let's say, the, the lighting product, the light source. We're considering the, the properties of the light source and what is it that we're implementing to the environment based on human-centric approach. I wonder how can we actually change this terminology? Light mm -hmm. is for humans. And you also mentioned, I have to add this, that sustainability it's all, somehow repels because we don't have a defined uh, definition of it. It's very confusing maybe for some people. We have to, there's some, it's interesting that part of the language where uh, there's the wording of sustainability, then human-centric, and we have to find a balance there, I think. Mm -hmm. A balance of how do we apply uh, artificial lighting uh, for our benefit, but at the same time, taking care of the nighttime. I think, um, uh, I think it's, it's much easier than we think it is. And um, so the, the association that produces this show is called the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. They put out six strategies for darkness restoration. Okay. And the first strategy is industry alignment. And I'll tell you this. The industry is not, the lighting industry in North America, I, I, I don't have a lot of sort of input on Europe, but in North America, the lighting industry is not on board with this. And I think that is the worst financial decision they could possibly make. I think it's bad for the bottom line. And here's why. We already have the technology. We have the, um, it's a deployment issue to do this. And we know how to do it. And... Um, it would make every single outdoor municipal street light, wall pack, all the lights outside in every city back in play again for the lighting industry. So that means we have to change all or, or ret retrofit or adapt all of the outdoor lighting in North America to accomplish these darkness goals. That is very good for business in the lighting industry. And, <laughs> but you, you talk to people in the lighting industry that are leaders and they say, no, 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 no. We have to balance the concerns of people who want to continue polluting with light versus those of that want to start to see darkness preservation. Now, I, I, I obviously paraphrased what they're saying, right? You know, it's like, oh, so you want to, you want to make sure that the light polluters have a, have a seat at the table instead of saying that we're, we don't want to do light pollution anymore. Yeah, do you understand what I'm saying? The, if the industry, mm -hmm. if the industry leadership just came together and said, "We want to tackle light pollution. We want to stop that. We agree." I think the fundamental problem, Catherine, and I'll have you answer this: Why is the darkness restoration movement, or darkness preservation movement, or dark sky movement, why is it not considered an environmental issue? It's not. It's not considered by governments. It's not considered by citizens to be an environmental issue. Why is that? I don't have a definite answer to why it's that, um, but I think it's starting. I think it's starting. I think I have noticed that um, right now manufacturers are feeling the weight of uh, the fact that lighting professionals want to educate themselves about the subject as well that the general public it's asking questions um and stakeholders as well and uh, 
Can you repeat the question? I, I want to try to answer it. Right. Why do? Why is like okay? So you have climate change, you have plastics in the ocean, mm -hmm. you have water pollution. These are all considered pollutions, and everybody knows. Like, imagine if you know you were talking to um, the wastewater industry, and the you had a polluted water source. And the wastewater industry turned around and said to you, well, we have to balance the needs of those who want to pollute the water with those who want to drink the water. We have to balance those needs. That's ridiculous. No one would ever say anything like that. But the lighting industry is saying, no, no, we need to balance the needs of the people that want to create light pollution and want to continue doing things the way we've always done them against those that want to restore darkness and preserve darkness in a responsible outdoor lighting fashion they don't want to know lights they just want darkness uh, restoration and preservation as much as possible we have to balance those needs like why does the lighting industry think it's okay the lighting industry think it's okay to create tons and tons of light pollution and why doesn't the public well, and the environmentalists not adopt this obviously solvable environmental problem and make it its own it's a very yeah it's a very complex uh, subject to answer with, let's say, one sentence uh, <laughs> answer. But I would say that you're describing two uh, scenarios that are somehow very far away from the other. You have mm -hmm. one scenario where there's this extreme emission of light, and then you have the other scenario where it's complete darkness. And we're not talking about, let's say, that meeting point of um, how can we reduce this amount of light not to pollute um, I don't know the answer to why, but I think um, I can connect this answer to uh, the fact that we are not communicating. We are staying in silos in our own fields. And let's say there's the industry trying to create a business out of it. Then there's the environmental aspect trying to protect and they remain in silos. I want to be very optimistic of saying that uh, right now we have webinars, we have workshops, we have this uh, eagerness of, of okay, of light pollution, and there are manufacturers out there saying, um, so here are our products, and this is what we're trying to do. I have noticed a trend on this. On mm -hmm. okay, we're going to give a webinar on light pollution. We're going to address these issues, and I think we also need to hear what the not only what lighting designers uh, think of, okay, how do we put this into context, into an applied light? How do I apply this to a project? Mm -hmm. The, I have a theory. It's not, it's not a nice theory, but I'm going to say this. I'm encouraged as well. So since I, you know, um, since the, 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 with the nailed board started the, this podcast, We've seen a movement growing and there's more and more news. There's definitely a lot of information coming out about dark skies, darkness preservation in, in this line of this movement. But you know what? Sadly, I think the largest problem from within the lighting industry. So you're talking, you're in academia and then there's the general public and governments and you know, all this kind of stuff. But within the lighting industry, I think the number one barrier is that people don't want to admit they're wrong and they made a mistake. I think that's the number one issue. I, 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 and believe me, because I do many lighting podcasts, I've talked to a lot of people, and I think that, that they don't want to admit they made a mistake because that we've changed literally 
millions of streetlights and outdoor lights in North America in the last 10 years. And people don't want to say, you know what, that was a mistake. But the problem is, if the lighting industry doesn't, and I'm talking too much on this podcast, Scott, but if the lighting industry doesn't turn itself around and say, yes, that was a mistake, they're going to be regulated. Because I believe this movement is gaining steam and power. And I think the governments are going to start to legislate these types, and they already are, but they're going to start to enforce this legislation more and more and more. And it'll be like in different areas, we'll move faster. But I'm, a, I'm encouraged, but I, I'm in, from the lighting industry, I think we should embrace the issue and go after it as opposed to resisting it. And right now, the, right now the lighting industry is largely resisting it, Catherine. And I don't know why. I think what you mentioned, it's uh, very important. I guess that once you realize that you made, let's say, a mistake, how do you know that the next step that you're, let's say you change this lighting, <laughs> that this is the right one? I think we should consider the application of light. It, it, it was somehow throughout history, a trial and error, a trial mm. and error. Um, we started applying light in different scenarios and uh, technology has always been that forefront trial and error, uh, what works, what wouldn't work. And I think LEDs has uh, allowed to comprehend uh, how can we manipulate it? I think mm -hmm. that's the positive part of it, mm -hmm. um, that we can use uh, new technologies to, to tailor them to these two different worlds that we somehow want to meet in, in, in the middle. LEDs are somehow the, the, the meeting point, I would say, where we can find a solution, mm. where we can tailor, let's say, color appearance. We can tailor the distribution. Um, we can manipulate so many aspects of light uh, that I think that we're not considering that yet. I think you're exactly right with the LEDs, the, the, the controllability and the depth of different things technology-wise we can do with LED is definitely the bridge we can walk over. What I'm saying from the lighting industry perspective is, guys, this is a bonanza. And I don't mean to like be make it cheap, but this is going to be the biggest lighting bonanza in the history of lighting bonanzas. Because if we get on board as an industry and we meet these academia and understand their research and come up with engineering solutions that work and try to mitigate the possible problems that we may create and do incrementally change this, we will solve a lot of problems and it'll be a win, win, win for everybody. But the lighting industry is resistant and I'm trying to change that with this show. <laughs> That's the goal of the show is to change the industry's mind, Catherine, about the, these issues. Um, we don't get enough talk about non-human life. So I'm going to change gears here a little bit. Why, you know, why should we, somebody listening to this, like, I don't care about bugs and birds. Birds are annoying. They poop, they poop on my car. You know, this is, some people have that kind of feeling. Why should people be concerned about the other flora and fauna we live with? Okay. So I don't have a background in biology. I'm learning okay. is that... Basically, if we had, let's say, none of these natural environments that surround us, none of the flora and fauna that are affected by artificial light at night, I don't think we would be able to sustain ourselves. Um, 
we use uh, these recreational areas, green areas, let's say when you go to a park, when you go to a lake, and if they are light polluted, uh, the living organisms that are thriving in these environments would not be there if uh, artificial light and light stayed in these uh, locations. Um, I think we underestimate uh, how much we are, are affecting uh, everything that is outside our home, everything that is outside, uh, let's say, our um, the places that were somehow in cluster because once you're indoors, I think everything is tailored to yourself. But once you go outdoors, you become minimized. Everything, it's so uh, bigger than yourself and we underestimate that. And in this aspect of artificial light at night affecting, uh, let's say, uh, different organisms, it is, I think, like this domino effect. If we somehow lose, let's say, um, uh, I don't want to mention species, but a specific species, it would somehow trigger this effect because there's another species that will require that will somehow uh, feed on that organism. Um, and at the end of the day, we are on that. We are one of those dominoes affected by, by it. So sustainability is reflect is in a way a, a way of talking about respecting the the this 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 cycle of life, which includes all living organisms in the in the earth, and allowing that to thrive. When we talk about sustainability, just to loop back on that, that's what you're talking about: is that all of these organisms and these systems and these water systems and everything that's happening, it needs to be allowed to thrive at at you know an optimal performance, so that we can then thrive as well. Is that what is that what you're saying? Yes, I think also sustainability links to this understanding of uh, everything that the human being is doing can affect, can have an effect. And um, I remember we had developed for uh, one of our papers this um, communication framework that um, we have to consider, let's say, in the in the field of uh, uh, lighting professionals and artificial light at night researchers, that we need an understanding of light as a tool. But at the same time, we need an understanding of ecology in order to to grasp what is this tool that we're applying. So we call it that we have a an, um, a lighting foundation and an ecological ceiling you would somehow feed this information from one field to the other in order to understand, I'm applying this light, these are the tools that I can use, but there's this ecological ceiling that will limit uh, the ones that I should avoid. Hmm. Hmm. You know, I think there's a problem with the phrase artificial light. I th you know, I think that, 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 that it's not artificial, it's, it's real. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's, mm -hmm. it, it, we're not, it, the, the, if it's artificial, it would have no impact. You know, what we're saying is that the application of non-sunlight at night or something like that, you know what I'm saying? In, in times when it would formerly have been dark causes a host of low level consequences that are building together to create a larger, a contribute to a larger environmental issue. Like that's, 
kind of what we're saying, right? It's like, it's, it's not that, you know, there's this one problem from light pollution is that there's all these little tiny problems that are happening concurrently. And these problems are getting worse and worse as we deploy more and more LED uniformity, high brightness, 5,000 K lights. And it's incrementally going to cause more problems down the road. And it's kind of like the idea of the word artificial light is it's actually very real and it causes problems and it's getting worse and worse every year. And, you know, like I said, with the guy with North Korea, South Korea, people see it as a symbol of our success as opposed to an environmental issue we need to solve. We need to stop seeing it. Like we need to change our whole axiomatic presupposition to outdoor light almost at night where we're we no longer see it as a symbol of safety or we need to change that and turn that entirely around maybe it is more difficult than i think <laughs> because it's not that simple i would say <laughs> yeah I, well i think it's not simple yeah it's like you know when the ozone layer was opening what's going to happen we're going to you know it's being caused by you know um cfcs we need to stop the production of cfcs because otherwise we're going to burn ourselves up with uvc light it's the, the, there's too many little tiny problems, you know, that are symbolized by a turtle going the wrong way. Uh, for, instead of going to the water, it goes to the variety store on the corner or something like that. There's like those little things, but we're almost, we're tacking on little problems. The more we go and go and go, and there's like, there's like a momentum to those problems where they're adding on top of one another. That's key to to unlock this is to see that it's a whole bunch of little things, not one big thing. Is that a fair kind of understanding of what you're saying? I would say it's a fair understanding, but I, wa I want to go back to the wording that you mentioned about mm -hmm. artificial light. Mm -hmm. um, so I have debated this a lot, like what would be the appropriate wording to use to somehow communicate that this tool pollutes. Mm -hmm. um, in academia, it is addressed as alam, short, alam, and it's artificial light at night. Um, and if you just mention the wording artificial light at night, this wording, it's not mentioning that it's polluting. You have to look mm -hmm. for the wording light pollution or ecological light pollution that specifically it's um addresses the the how artificial light affects uh, uh an organism um there's uh, a very particular book i stumbled upon when i was doing my master thesis that guided me through understanding the tool i was using i think it, it even at the beginning i was quite confused and lost like okay this is um a tool i'm using i'm i'm so um I like the field of artificial of uh, lighting design, but how do I make a shift on understanding it or changing my habits of not polluting? I think it relies on that aspect that uh, it's a habit that we have uh, built on for many years to apply light and uh, artificial lighting, um, the terminology that you used, that you said that it shouldn't be called artificial. I like, I would differ on this. I would wording artificial because we would somehow not differentiate it from the natural sources. Let's say uh, the lunar cycles, we have uh, uh, the illumination from uh, the stars, 
we have um, the aurora borealis. These terms are somehow, um, we know them, but in a very broad way. Mm -hmm. I wonder if uh, one day a lighting professional would consider, let's say, lunar cycles when um, their uh, applications are installed uh, in urban environments. Um, yeah, just an idea thrown to the air. <laughs> I think I, I think it's um, I think the word artificial is problematic. I prefer the word electric light. Um, okay. I think electric light is 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 more is a better idea, and then the the idea of it being artificial is basically saying it's not real. <laughs> it's real, and okay. it causes problems. Um, so you have sunlight, moonlight, starlight, the aurora borealis, and electric light. Those are the five major types. Maybe firelight would be another one. I mean, I don't think you would call firelight artificial. It looks seems pretty real. You have many other like natural sources that we are not considering. Bioluminescent, um, that it's a chemical made by organisms in their bodies. This is what I'm saying about communication. This would be a knowledge that a biologist would know. And mm -hmm. how do we transfer this information to the other field? Well, Nailed is doing... I'm a not saying... Go ahead. No, sorry, I'm, I'm not saying that a lighting professional should become a biologist. I think once you are aware of something, you mm. consider it. Well, monitoring is the first step towards changing anything. So, you know, um, you need to be able to monitor something. You need to be able to measure it or you need to be able to understand its scope. You know, if, you know, if you want to, if you want to, put on muscle you have to start bench pressing with what you can bench press and then steadily increase that amount and monitor it so that you can get stronger and stronger right so the, we know that these are keys to success um the other thing i was thinking is that you know in our darkness restoration course that nailed is going to be producing shortly i think types of lighting um are very important for people to understand that there is you know these different kinds of lighting sunlight and there's probably different kinds of sunlight actually there's noon sky, daylight, there's sunset, there's sunrise, you know, the cloudy day sunlight. There's different kinds of, even within sunlight, you have different types. Um, but I think that electric light is an interesting way to describe it. But again, we're kind of in the early days of this movement. Um, any thoughts or recommendations? We're coming up on 45 minutes, if you can believe it. Any thoughts or recommendations for the Restoring Darkness listeners? that you would, you would give them in order to start moving towards tackling this problem as an industry? Good question. <laughs> I would say to be quite active in um, what other fields are doing, open to curiosity, I would say. And I, I mentioned this in a very broad way, let's say to find where uh, or how can you contact someone that it's working in academia or the field of research in order to understand what you're using? And communication can start with a very, let's say, even with a tweet. Hmm. You find out who's working in this field. I think uh, now that we have somehow lost over the past years this aspect of just, let's say, uh, this very universal like business gesture of uh, collaborating with others, everything it's done uh, via a computer, a camera, uh, a Zoom link. I think 
participating in conferences, let's say, where you have new information about the tools that uh, you're using would be um, one of the solutions as well to address uh, uh, stakeholders in your, I would say locally. Um, what else can I mention about this? Um, yeah, there's not many people working in light pollution. There's a very tiny community, I have to say, distributed all over the world. Um, Who is the leader? I think like, most what of them... organization is the leader in your mind in this in this field? Well, I and wouldn't even mention if it's that there's EU, a broad... Like, even if you want to say, well, in Europe or, you know, whatever, if there's an organization that you think is really in a leadership position on this. An organization... I think you, it would be great to, to access the, there's a group called Cost Lona, mm -hmm. uh, Loss of the Night Network. And in here, uh, in this, uh, they have a website. You can find all the persons that are working in this field. Um, and it's a great source for accessing like who's working in which field, because there, it's not only light pollution, it's you have uh, biologists, you have, um, astrophysicists, you have chronobiologists, you have um, so many fields that are involved in understanding light as a pollutant, not only in this environmental aspect, but as well how it affects humans. And uh, the exchange of information in the academia up to now remains there. And I think, as I mentioned before, we have to somehow reach out. I would say there's it has to be so it has to do somehow with what you mentioned we have not yet accepted that it was a mistake that mm. applying light let's say in this manner i think we should consider it as okay we tried this tool how can we improve it mm -hmm. how can we make an upgrade how can we uh, i think it's better to say to how can we this? stop the damage it does I, I, I think As we're well. too concerned with the positive. How can we make it better? How can we help it improve light, human health outcomes? How can we stop it from doing its damage? That's way easier. It's easier to look at it like that. You know, it's because when you say, how can we help it improve human environments? It's like, oh, we could think about that forever. And how does it, you know what I mean? It's like, I think the better angle is nobody wants to talk about it, but it's like, how do we stop the damage? You know, the flicker, mm -hmm. the color temperature and get and make it in order to, for it to be to work towards sustainability. Sorry to interrupt you on that, but I, I just keep going back to oh. that where it's easier to we know what does damage and we know we can stop that. How can we do that? Oh, the first step would be to lower the Kelvin temperature of outdoor lights. The next step would make, be make them shielded. The next step after that would be to network lighting control them so we can even dim them down during bird migrations or whatever the heck is happening. You know, I, there, it's like stop the damage and then we can work on improvements. Let's get rid of the damage first. You know what I mean? I don't know. I just uh, I keep being so passionate. You. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Catherine. Do you, that was your final thoughts, but do you have any final, final thoughts? <laughs> final, final thoughts. Yeah. Um, I think I would like to address somehow uh, uh, the new lighting professionals, the ones that are actually studying the career. 
I can like understand how overwhelming it is when you're trying to understand a tool. How am I going to apply it? How am I going to use it? And let's say you're entering into just your first internship. Uh, I remember I had, I was quite overwhelmed by, okay, I'm interested by academia, but at the same time, I love the fact that you can design light. Can I actually, in between, I even felt crazy at a moment where I said, this would be an impossible field to work with, to mm -hmm. be honest. And then um, meeting the right persons, I think, that were interested in the same questions. Uh, I would address, I would say, the new students that are uh, getting out of the career that would say, is it actually possible to work in this field of, let's say, considering the natural environment, and apply light, I would say yes, but it's something we're still working on, how to make um, the lighting practice more sustainable. And, you know, for all you kids in school out there, like the lighting industry has lots of exciting, cool jobs as well. So not just academia, but to take some of these principles you've learned in, in university or whatever and, and go work for a major lighting manufacturer or at a lighting distribution company and, and bring that knowledge and passion into that. And the lighting industry needs it and there's lots of great careers in lighting, folks. And so we've come to the end of our show here today with Catherine Perez-Vega and, we, and we're very grateful to have her on. And But most importantly, and I know I speak on behalf of her as well, that we thank you, the listeners, for supporting this and, and working on this problem with us as we move forward out of the movement phase into where we can actually make a difference. So if you made it to the end of with us today, thanks for listening. Bye for now. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. Your customer cares about light pollution. Suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.